Let's come before our Father in prayer. Our merciful God and Heavenly Father, you are our God and we are your people. You are our shepherd and we are the sheep of your pasture. And Father, we have sinned against you, but you have promised that if we turn to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Solomon said, as we turn to this temple, you will hear and forgive. For all the times that we have placed our trust in the things of this earth, Father, hear us and forgive. For all the times we did not worship you in spirit and in truth as we ought, hear and forgive. For all the times when our words did not exalt and magnify your holy name, Father, hear us and forgive. And for the times we did not rest in you, hear us and forgive. Father, hear our prayer, and when we cry out to you, give heed. In the dark of night, or in the cheer of the daytime, whether we go to work or whether we stay home, or when we lie down or when we get up and we call to you, hear our prayers. Hear our shouts of joy as well as our cries of sorrow. And when you hear, turn to us in our weakness and our foolishness and be merciful to us. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for the beauty of the earth and for the grandeur of the heavens, for times of play and times of feasting. And we pray that whatever tomorrow brings, you will give us the strength to endure so that no matter where you might lead us, we might prosper patiently under your hand. And we know that we only prosper when we truly learn to hallow and magnify your name in our hearts. So, Father, cause us to follow you wherever you lead us. Teach us to trust in you and to exalt your holy name, even when it means that we must decrease. Teach us to magnify you, even when it means admitting that we are wrong and have been for decades even. Teach us to magnify you in our study of Scripture that we might not read our own stories into the words, but come to know you as you have revealed yourself, that we might learn to humble ourselves under your hand. We pray for those suffering from the afflictions of the body. Uh, Give Michael the right treatment for his foot pain. Give him relief. Give healing to Bud. Provide for Roger and strengthen him. Give healing and strength to Kim. Protect Hugo from the virus that's going around and bring them home safely. Give to each of us all that we need for body and soul each day. Cause us to trust in you for the future that you will provide for us as you always have. Protect us from evil and destructive men who seek to harm and destroy your image bearers. Protect the gospel as it is declared around the world today. Bring life to dead and dry bones by your Holy Spirit. And as for false prophets and wolves, we pray that you would remove them and take the sheep from their jaws. Give deliverance to the captive, release the prisoners. Give wisdom and justice to our governor and our president that they might rule wisely and well. Give clarity to lawmakers, take away pride, and tear down the covetous and evildoer in high places, and raise up faithful leaders who know how to serve in truth. In our community, we pray your favor and blessing on those who seek to alleviate suffering and bring comfort to the traumatized and hurting. We bless those organizations. We pray that you would bless those organizations that do that work. We pray that you would bless Tip and A Woman's Friend and Live On and Casa de Esperanza and Freed and so many others that are working to bring safety to the 
ones in danger and help to the wounded and hope to the comfortless. And we pray that you would bless their work. Bless the work of the first responders and protect our streets. Provide food for the hungry. Give safety and justice to all who have to flee from their abusive homes. Give hope and comfort to the downtrodden and discouraged. We pray that you would give safety and deliverance from those in the Klamath area who are fleeing their homes. But above all, Father, we pray that the gospel will shine throughout the world. Until your sheep come home, they can find no comfort. So bring home the wandering and the hurting and the lost. Draw your sheep into your fold. Give them salvation and comfort and hope and purpose. Restore to each of us your image and conform us to the image of your dear Son. And let's pray together. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. My text this morning is uh, verses 11 to the end of the chapter of, Prov- of Luke, chapter 15. I've printed the text on the back of the bulletin, but I will read the entire chapter of Luke 15 this morning. Luke 15. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is no joy, or there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive, and was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In my lifetime, there's been a great deal of talk about what we call worldviews. A worldview is how you look at the world, how you look at what the problem in the world is, how you look at your relationship with God, and how you look at everything. You can't but help to have a worldview. There's been much said about a Christian worldview. The problem with that is The strongest person usually gets to define what a Christian worldview is and then inflict that on everyone else for their own good. And so I would resist that. But I would like to talk this morning about two primary ways of viewing the world. One way is the way of the Enlightenment. The founding of this country was in many ways a product of the Enlightenment, natural law, Nature's God, the exaltation of reason, the overarching principle of the enlightenment of modernism was this. With a proper application of reason, we could build a just and prosperous society. Even in our Declaration of Independence, it says, We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, which is a rational statement. The age of reason also carefully defined who is entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Obviously, at the time, it would be the European male whose advanced demeanor and moral sense gave him the right to rule over women, children, and anyone not European. And so as it's been pointed out many times before, modernism applied to the ones in power. Sometimes that era was called the age of reason. It developed through the centuries, and in the late 19th century, the Enlightenment principles became known as modernism. It was a very exciting time for those in power. Darwin had discovered that science could teach us why we are here, And soon God took a back seat. Medical experiments could explain human behavior. 
Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell were doing amazing things with electricity. The telegraph and the train system brought nations and families together. It appeared as if science was fulfilling its promise to bring about a just and proper and prosperous society. Through a proper application of the laws of reason, embedded into the universe through the work of the Creator, we could bring about a just and prosperous society. From that, there was one tiny step, and you could remove the Creator altogether. And then you ended up with a man called Nietzsche. The problem is, as Darwin discovered, that what is embedded in creation and what you see with your reason and with your eyes is this. The stupid are quickly killed. A mouse that made stupid or slow decisions would be quickly devoured by the snake. The snake that was a little too weak would soon starve. An injured wildebeest would soon be devoured by the lion. On the principles of the Enlightenment, there was no basis to declare a human being any different than animals. The lazy and the stupid and the not-so-advanced die young. The wise and the diligent prosper, and that's how it should be. And then soon the concept of man as an image bearer of God went Politics became subject to the survival of the fittest, and Nietzsche prevailed. A superman would come, and it would be his duty to evolve the race. This is by necessity an oversimplification, for this is not intended to be a lesson on philosophy. So we'll skip ahead. In the modernist viewpoint, the age of reason came to age in the 20th century. The first disaster of the age of reason was the sinking of the Titanic, You may ask yourself, why was that such a momentous thing? Because for the first time, science and modernism got a chink in its armor. And that quickly progressed to two world wars, communism, socialism, fascism, death camps, gulags, concentration camps, and so on. The worldview of the Enlightenment came to an end in the Second World War. The fact is, reason as valuable as it is, is rigorous and unbending. Two plus two equals four, no matter how hard you try to make it otherwise. Reason doesn't know anything of grace. It only knows the strict application of justice, of moral laws that are engraved in the universe, and they are inflexible. The fact is, as the book of Proverbs even teaches, people are stupid and make bad decisions. They will be devoured by the stronger. And reason teaches us that that's the way it should be. If businesses are small and weak, they will be devoured by the stronger, bigger businesses. And that's the way it should be. The one who wastes all of his living ends up in a pig pen. And that's the way it should be. The weak and the stupid cannot act, add anything to society. And so modernism always ends up with death camps. But we are all image bearers of God. We know that we are more than reason. Reason cannot explain our longing for grace and redemption. And thus in the 60s, the human heart rebelled 
And there arose a philosophy in Europe that quickly spread to America called postmodernism, after modernism. Postmodernism rejects absolute truth, points out the flaws in pure reason. The end result of postmodernism is why don't we just let everybody live out their own truth? Who are we to say what's right and what's wrong? There's no such thing as absolutes, right and wrong, or social constructs. And we can't know anything anyway. So let's just make the choices the best we know how and live our lives the best we know how. There are those who will hear this sermon and will nod along to the viewpoint of modernism. That's right. Reason is reason. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. Men are men. Women are women. God made them male and female. It's black. It's white. This is the way it's supposed to be. And there are those who will nod along to the postmodernist view. Who are we to say? We can't know anything for sure anyway. How can we be so arrogant as to think that our way is the right way? Let's just live our lives and let people be. The modern modernist tends to lean to the right politically. The modern postmodernist tends to lean to the left politically. And quite honestly, this sermon will make both of them very uncomfortable because neither of those viewpoints is Christianity. The problem in our day and age is we've been trying to combat postmodernism by going back to modernism. We try to apply the strict principles of reason, but that didn't work the first time, or the second time, or the hundredth time. Modernism always ends up with totalitarianism and death camps. And postmodernism always ends up in the pig pen starving to death. It's the only way they can end. And so in both ages, modernism and postmodernism have been fought as enemies of Christianity. Modernism in the early 20th century denied anything that could not be explained by reason. They denied the resurrection and the virgin birth and the government of God over the universe and ultimately grace itself because grace can never be explained by reason. And the postmodernists denied that anything could be known for certain and therefore anything goes. The modernist would allow the man to starve in the pig pen because he made horrible choices. There's no arguing with that. Reason does indeed dictate that if you throw all your money away on beer and prostitutes and fancy clothes, you should starve. It's patently unjust to take money away from the innocent to provide for somebody who's thrown it all away and is living in a pig pen. Postmodernists would respond by supporting the man's decisions. They'd validate him and perhaps give him something to eat, but they would leave him where he was not wanting to interfere with his free will or with his values. Jesus doesn't side with either one. Both the postmodernist and the modernist miss the feast. Jesus says to all of them, come home, sit down, eat. Chapter 15 of Luke offers three perspectives on the same theme. The theme is that which is lost is now found. In the first two, the owner is seeking. The shepherd goes sheep seeking the lost sheep. In the next one, the woman goes seeking the lost coin. 
And the last one, the son is seeking and finally comes to his senses and comes home. It's two perspectives of one act, the lost coming home. In the first scene, the sheep wanders away and gets lost because he's a sheep. That's what sheep do. In the second scenario, the coin makes no choices in the matter. The coin is simply lost and no one is blamed. In the third perspective, that which is lost is lost because of truly horrible choices. The three perspectives on the same theme. The occasion, if you remember, Jesus is eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. These are real publicans and sinners, as I said last week. From one perspective, they are sinners because they're born sinners, just like sheep are born sheep. Sheep do what sheep do, sinners do what sinners do. They're reacting to their status as outsiders by resisting the best that they know how. And so they act like fallen humans, making sinful decisions because they're fallen humans. From the second perspective, they're lost through no fault of their own. They're born of Adam and had no choice in the matter. Adam's sin is imputed on their behalf. And just like the coin, they're lost through no fault of their own at all. And from the third perspective, they're lost because they willfully and pridefully despised their father, pursued a life of flagrant debauchery because they wanted to. You see those three perspectives on one act. In the case of human beings, all three scenarios are true. They all have the same result. We end up lost. And the point of all three parables is Jesus comes to find them. He tells them to come home, to sit down. And they sit with him and feast, and there is much rejoicing. This is Jesus explaining what he's doing, sitting there talking and eating and feasting with publicans and sinners. And the occasion of all three of these famous stories is the critique of the Pharisees who despised him and said, what are you doing eating with these people? In that context, the famous story of the prodigal son is clear. The prodigal is the tax collector and the sinner. Jesus does not condone their actions. He says they've wasted their living with prodigal living. He does not imply that their decisions are valid decisions which will lead to peace with God. No, their decisions is what caused a chain of events that ended up with them in the pig pen. They flagrantly despised the father. They demanded to use his gifts as they saw fit. They hated the restrictions of home and demanded the right to live as they saw fit. Isn't that a perfect description of our sinful nature? God has given each one of us our gifts, our abilities, our personalities, our talents. And the sinner uses this with no thought of restraint, no thankfulness or gratitude for the goodness of God who gives such gifts to men. The prodigals of every age only think about how much pleasure they can wring out of whatever God has given them. But even deeper than that, 
in the story, the prodigal son doesn't just make choices that he thinks will bring him joy. He makes the choices that he thinks will show his contempt for his father the most clearly. He's living out a life of hatred towards God. Whatever the father thought that he should do, the prodigal will do the opposite. I'll show him. Whatever God requires of me, I will do the opposite. No one has the right to tell me what to do, especially God. Who is he and who is his church to tell me how to run my life? Even if those laws that God has woven into creation, even if those laws will lead to life and peace, and breaking those laws will lead to ruin and illness and poverty and starvation and bondage, the prodigal will break the law just to show his father that he can. Even if it leads to ruin or illness or poverty or starvation or bondage, he knows it. But he will willfully run after it because it is in his nature to hate God and his neighbor. Jesus certainly does not condone lawless living. But notice that in this parable, Jesus gives three reasons for the prodigal ending up in the pig pen. The first one is what I just said. He wasted all of his substance on riotous living. The second reason was there was a famine in the land. And the third reason was no one took pity on him. So there's a reason for the prodigal's desperate condition that will appeal to every type of human being. The moralist would focus on his riotous living and the application would be he should have worked harder and smarter. But then there's a fatalist that would say, yeah, the world's horrible. The famine hits the land. There's nothing anybody can do about it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'll go off singing K Sarah Sarah into the sunset. The socialist would read this parable and say the problem was nobody gave him anything. They would all be right. Jesus has a different solution. Come home. Jesus also does not view this man with contempt or ridicule. He views this man with compassion. Even though this man is making those hateful choices that he has in the whole thing, Jesus is viewing and talking about him with such compassion. The father, so hated and despised by the prodigal, is not home carefully sharpening his swords and feeding his grudges and getting his armies ready to go out and kill the guy. He's waiting eagerly for his son to return. And when he sees his son returning, he rushes out and runs towards him and brings him into his embrace. It might be helpful to remember that the point of this parable is not a dissertation on free will versus the sovereignty of God. Jesus has already taught that he went out to seek and save the lost sheep and the lost coin. Now it's presented from the other point of view. The young man came to his senses and came home. Both are the same event. That which Jesus seeks also seeks Jesus in return. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But the point of this parable is the father is waiting with love and compassion for his son to return, which is taught in John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus, using these stories, is teaching us profound theology. The prophet Joel wrote, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Paul teaches that all those who call on the name of the Lord are those who have been sought and found by the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus said in John, No one can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. It all goes together. The point of this parable is, come home. A modernist would give the prodigal son a lecture on making better choices. Yeah, I told you, you waste all your money, you end up in the pig pen. Didn't I tell you that? Didn't I tell you to put 10% of your wages away into a savings account? But he doesn't have anything left now. His substance is gone. He's in a desperate condition. The postmodernist would be very tolerant and validate all his decisions. But he'd leave him in the pig pen, miserable and starving. In contrast to both of them, Jesus says, come home. The feast is prepared. Your father is waiting. Throw down your weapons and your hatred and your rebellion and come home. You're in this situation because you made really bad choices. You rebelled against God. But you also ended up here because you live in a cursed world and there's famine in the land. And also, people are self-centered and self-serving. All of that's true. You have sinned and you have been sinned against. All of that's true. But now, put all that aside. Come home. Last week I mentioned that Jesus carried himself in such a way that the tax collectors and the sinners came flocking to him. They desired to have him in their home. They wanted to feast with him. And I asked, do we emulate him? Do we live our lives in such a way that tax collectors and sinners want to be in our presence? Or is their response when we show up, oh, great, that guy again. I do not have time for this today. We know that tax collectors and sinners were actually sinners. And we know that Jesus found their sins unclean, degrading, and hateful. He is, after all, true, eternal, holy God. He is the same God of which the prophet said, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. So just from a practical viewpoint, what would they have talked about at dinner? The conversations that Jesus would have had with them would have been conversations that would cause him to be a welcomed guest in their homes. Someone that they would listen to. So what did they talk about? Why did they run towards Jesus because they came, he came to seek and save that which was lost. And he met them where they were at. Our first thought would be, well, he obviously confronted them with their sin. But then, why would they have kept inviting them into his home? Him into their home. 
Suppose a man approached the prodigal son feeding the pigs and saying, you know what, you're here because you made horrible choices. You really offended your father. You deserve this and worse. He could have even said it nicely. But here's the problem with that. The prodigal son already knew that. What he needed to know was how to get home. What he needed to know was whether or not he would be received when he got home. So my suggestion would be this. Jesus sat at the table with the publicans and sinners and was welcomed by them. Meaning he spoke to them of the temple, of the sacrifices, of the Passover, of God's presence, of the Spirit filling the temple and the Spirit being poured out, of his office as the Messiah, seeking and saving the lost sheep, the fulfillment of the prophets, the one of whom it was said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, even those who are in captive to their sin, and opening the prison to those who are bound. They already knew that they were miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They wanted to know if there was any good news. They wanted to know if there was a balm in Gilead for healing their wounds. Is there healing for broken hearts? Is there hope? Is there a resurrection? Will God willingly, really dwell with his people? Jesus spoke of gardens and of brides and of bridegrooms and of new creations and new heavens and new earths. The kingdom of God breaking forth in this age in the hearts of men and women that God came to seek and save those which were lost, to invite them to the feast, to welcome sinners to his table and bring them to himself in the unity of true faith. There's a lot to talk about when you look at it that way. There's a lot more to talk about with people than everything that's wrong with them. Point them to hope. And so they flocked to him. Yes, the power of the Holy Spirit drew them to him. We know that. But they willingly flocked to him and he sat down and ate and drank with them. And the Pharisees got angrier and angrier. Why? That brings us to the older son. See, in this account, we always talk about the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually a parable of the prodigal sons. For there were two sons fleeing from their father. As the feast is going, there's another son who didn't come home. He was out in the fields working. He also hates the father. He just doesn't have the courage to show it. He's just as angry with the father and just as hateful, but he hides it better and puts on the front of the righteous one. He's too afraid to come out of hiding. So he stays home fuming the entire time, which you can see in his response. He frets over everything, views himself as a slave. He says, I've been slaving away for you for years. And getting more and more hardened every time he does. Look at everything I've done. I've slaved away for you. I don't even have any fun. He goes out and has all the fun he wants and then comes back and you give him a party. You never let me party with my friends. You never let me have any fun. And I never once transgressed your commandment. Boy, I sure wanted to sometimes, but I didn't. I slaved away here year after year. You didn't even notice. Man, that one hits hard, doesn't it? 
That God is a harsh taskmaster just waiting to get us. And the Christian life is just working and working and working. And God doesn't ever give us anything. His motive wasn't love for his father. His life wasn't in fellowship with God. His longing wasn't for the embrace of the father. He resented the fact that other people got away with stuff and he never did. That's the problem with Pharisees of every age. God requires love. He created us to heartily love him, to live with him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify him, to rejoice with him. The older brother of every age turns that into harsh slavery. Isaiah rebukes it. He says, look at all these sacrifices you're bringing. Who told you to do this? You come here with your anger and your hatred and your crushing oppression. You trample over the widow. You hate everybody. You hate me. And now you're going to bring sacrifices to me and pretend like everything is okay? Who asked for that? What God offered us was fellowship. He would dwell with his people and we would be rooted and grounded in love. God's own people turned that whole beautiful thing into a tedious system of offerings and sabbath days and feast days and oh here we go again even the sabbath which was given to delight the heart of man became a tedious chore and a hated drudgery by design even in our country in modern times there are people that view that if you smile too much or joy too much or laugh too much on the sabbath day you are violating it it's a time for for drudgery Quit smiling. Who asked for that? Certainly not God. God doesn't need your sacrifices and your Sabbaths. He wants to give you himself. So listen to these two prodigals. The first prodigal isn't eating and feasting with his father because he's out wasting all of his substance with debauchery. But the older one wasn't feasting with his father either. That's Jesus' point. The older one was too angry at the injustice of it all to come inside and eat. If the feast wasn't for him, he wasn't going to have any part of it. But the upshot of it was this. He wasn't there. Whatever his reason and however, it just, however just it seemed to him at the time, he missed the feast. He was just like those in chapter 14 that wouldn't come because, well, I just bought a house, or I have a team of oxen, or I I just got married to a wife. I can't come. And this one was the worst one. He looked at who was at the feast, said, who let all this riffraff into the room? I'm not coming if these people are here. At bottom, were they any different than the prodigal? Neither one were at the feast. The fact is, this feast doesn't fit the principles of the Enlightenment. Because the invitation isn't like 2 plus 2 equals 4. The invitation is only of grace, never of merit. Those who are there can't be forecasted, can't be expected, can't be earned. Reason doesn't enter into it. Grace can't be measured and can't be formulated. God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom I will I harden. The feast isn't the conclusion of a logical argument. By 
every law of the universe, there's no way that the prodigal should have been there. There's no way that his father should have rushed out to hug him and welcome him home. It didn't make sense for him to kill the calf that he fattened up for a special occasion. Reason would dictate that the man would just do it again. He would squander it all over again. He earned his place at the pig pen. The older son should have just gotten the calf. But the reward comes not of merit, but of grace. This is why modernism can never bring the postmodernist home. It doesn't make any sense. But to the postmodernist, there isn't a feast, there isn't a father, life isn't any better than the pig pen. To each their own, just be true to yourself. So for both, there's no feast. But Jesus says, come home. That's our message. Jesus said, come home. Well, but I don't have the right clothes. I'll provide the right clothes. I'm too weak to walk. I'll carry you. I don't know the way. I am the way. My sins are too great. He says, my sacrifice covers it all. My grace is greater. I don't deserve it. Let's talk about grace again. Just come home. The world doesn't need to be validated. We can look all around us and see the misery of the postmodern viewpoint. Suicide, drugs, alcohol, debauchery of every sort, hopelessness, despair. But the answer isn't rationalism. It isn't calling people stupid, ignorant, foolish, explaining what's wrong with them, trying to force them into learning better logic so that they will make better decisions. That's not what will bring them home. That failed before, it'll fail again. The only thing that brings the world home is Jesus calling them home. That's the message of the church. Come home. Everything you need is here. The feast awaits. Lay everything else aside and come home. And when you get to the feast, you'll find that the table is full of people who were sinners. Tax collectors even. People that cause you to roll your eyes at them. People that you have contemptuously sneered and secretly thanked God that you were not like. All at the table. But that's exactly what keeps the older brother out of the feast. And Jesus says, if you're the older brother, come home. And he says, if you're the prodigal, come home. God's table is set for all of them. The blood of Christ is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. Don't worry that he won't have room or that the cross isn't enough. Just come home. And that's how the Bible ends. Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come just as we are, broken, sinners, wounded. Each day we come again, for there is no day in our life that we do not need your cleansing blood. 
that we do not need to be reassured of your invitation that is for me. Your body was broken for me and your blood was shed for me. And the invitation to come home is for me. And so, Lamb of God, we come together home to fellowship with you. In Jesus' name alone, amen.